everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I found myself wondering the other day if when the devil watches the usual suspects, which I assume he does on a fairly regular basis, not necessarily because he thinks it's a great movie, but because he's just a big fan of Stephen Baldwin, Brian Singer, and Kevin Spacey. But when it gets to the part where the guy says, the thing about how the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I wonder if when he gets to that part, the devil's like, seriously? The greatest trick? Um, the Spanish Inquisition, Carib, the doors, and that's just off the top of my head, guys. You think convincing the world I didn't exist was my greatest trick? It's not even top ten. Man, when you guys get down here, we are going to have a lot to talk about. And it's going to be surprisingly soon. Anyway, that's what I bet the devil thinks when he watches The Usual Suspects. But that's not what I came here to talk about. I'm here today to talk to you about a comic book. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Andrew Jefferson, and it's a doozy. Trigony. T'was aquatic teen appreciation day, and our hero's super did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy was coriander, and the beast boy outgrave. Beware the trigon, my adopted son. The antlers so fuzzy, the visage on belt. Beware the people's tower and shun the fire that doth melt. With his sea-strengthened limbs, long time the mansome foe he sought. He rested by the coral tree, and stood a while in thought. With slight procrastination, the trigon, the eyes of flame, came whiffling through the togi dimension, and burbled as he came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the sea-strengthened limbs went hayak, hayak. He left him banished, and because he was famished, he went galumphing back. And hast thou beat the Trigon foe? Oh, come to my arms, my Tom Jones-esque boy. Oh, fab child, my wet and wild, he chortled in his joy. T'was Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day, and our podcast host did gear and gimble in these Lewis Carroll riffs. Oh, Mimsy were hubs, brobdignation boasts. Now enjoy, enjoy this synopsis. Thanks, Andrew. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Annual Number 3, November 1987. The lady's name is Godiva. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by Michael Collins, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman and Barbara Randall. Teen Titans Roll Call, Nightwing, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Raven, Jericho, and introducing Danny Chase, previously in the new Teen Titans. Everyone spent the whole issue talking about their feelings, and it was great. Hooray! Gadzooks! 
Is that really the only thing that happened recently which is relevant to this story? Yup, and technically it isn't even particularly relevant. I just brought it up because I really liked that issue. Late at night, on the streets of Tokyo, Japan, John and Marie Chase have just taken their 13-year-old son Danny out for a night at the theater. Unfortunately, in the first ever comic book instance of it ending poorly when a couple takes their child to the theater at night, the Chases are accosted by a gang of motorcycle-driving toughs. I guess they shouldn't have taken that shortcut through Tokyo's crime alley. The leader of the bikers is a beautiful dark-skinned woman named Godiva. As her name would imply, she has very long hair, which is pulled up into a top-knot ponytail. After making sure that one of her henchmen is filming her, Godiva orders her minions to stuff the chases into the sidecars of their motorcycles and drive off with them. Young Danny manages to escape capture, and the thugs decide not to pursue him. It was the elder chases who were their targets. The kidnappers speed off to Godiva's secret hideout, a huge pagoda-style mansion in the foothills surrounding Mount Fuji. Somehow, the next day, Danny manages to locate Godiva's fortress. The precocious young teen waits outside in the bushes, but decides that he'd better not try to infiltrate the stronghold until he has some backup. A week later, Godiva shows up in New York. She blows a hole in the side of an oil tanker for some reason, and when the Titans show up, she zooms around in a sports car and makes them look silly. Beast Boy turns into a bird and flies after her, but Godiva's car is tricked out with some rocket launchers and laser cannons and stuff, so she shoots Gar right in his stupid bird face. The adolescent Danamore falls to the ground, and for a second it looks like he might die. Then Raven swoops in, and Raven's just as hard as she can at him, and Beast Boy begins to recover from his wounds. Begrudging! Hooray! Wonder Girl holds the oil tanker over her head while Starfire uses her magic space fire to weld the hole closed. Godiva starts to drive away, but Cyborg jumps into the passenger seat and busts his feet through the bottom of the car, applying brakes Fred Flintstone style to the speeding sports car. He even makes a Flintstones joke while he does it. It's pretty neat. I'm not the only one who's impressed by Cyborg either. Godiva compliments Vic both on his handiwork and his appearance. Then she uses mind control powers on the mostly molybdenum Marvel and forces him to do makeouts with her. Not cool, Godiva. When she is finished with her coerced smooch session, the consent agnostic creep spouts some non sequitur one liners, then hops in a helicopter and flies away. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Danny Chase storms into the headquarters of the CBI, the DCU's hybrid of the FBI and the CIA, and demands to speak to the Titans' government liaison, the delightfully named curmudgeon King Faraday. A dude who looks like Captain Kangaroo tells Danny to fuck off, but Danny's like, No, I'm not pranking you. It's important. The Captain Kangaroo-looking dude is like, Oh, okay, then go ahead and... When Danny pushes his way into Faraday's office, the chain-smoking secret agent is on the phone. Danny is like, Hang up, old man! My parents have been kidnapped, and I want to know what you're gonna do about it. Also, they're spies who work for you, and so am I! Good to know. Faraday hangs up and is like, Yeah, I know that, but thanks for the exposition. Here's the thing. That was my boss on the phone. He says we're gonna have to let Godiva kill your parents. Sorry about that. Danny isn't too stoked about the government's decision to let his folks die. He tells Faraday as much. Faraday is like, What, are you gonna cry about it? I said a perfunctory sorry about that. What more do you want from me? 
Now shut up and get out of my office. Dang. Seems like King Faraday could teach Donna Troy a thing or two about accelerated grief counseling. Instead of telling the bereaved to get over it after two weeks have passed, he's berating them for not getting over it before their loved ones are even dead. When Faraday finishes yelling at Danny for failing to put the future behind him, he storms out of the office. After making sure he's unobserved, Danny starts poking around on Faraday's computer. A little bit later, the Titans get a message on their computer, apparently from King Faraday, asking them to meet one of his agents in France for a secret mission. Rather than reply to the email, or call to confirm, the gang piles into their T-Jet and heads off to Europe. When they land, our heroes are understandably surprised when the agent who greets them at the airport is a bespectacled child named Danny. The gang's about to hop back on their plane and head home, but Danny convinces them that while he may have contacted them under false pretenses using Faraday's name, his crisis and his need for their help are quite real. When he starts pretending to cry as he tells them of the danger his parents are in, Donna tells him that if he stops fake sobbing, then they'll investigate the kidnapping. Danny does as she requests and admits that his tears were performative. Huh. I mean, his parents really are in mortal danger, but I guess it's good to know that that doesn't make him for real sad. I guess maybe Faraday did get through to the kid after all. Meanwhile, in the Swiss Alps, in a mansion identical to the one she first took them to in Japan, Godiva is questioning Danny's parents. It's not going great. Even though both chases are under her hypnotic sway, they still refuse to tell her the secret information she demands. Godiva threatens to mind-control John into letting her sex him to death, but that doesn't work, so she makes the kidnapped couple do karate at each other in the hopes that they'll eventually get sick enough of beating each other up that they'll spill the proverbial beans. While she is waiting for this telepathically-induced domestic disturbance to pay dividends, Godiva reprimands her henchmen. First, she smacks around a guy carrying a video camera for filming the chases fighting each other instead of keeping the camera focused on her. She starts to give him a little speech apropos of nothing about the fact that her father was a Chinese prince and her mother was an African princess, but then she notices that one of the guards who is on break is smoking a cigarette. This is apparently against the strict rules of conduct Godiva has for her employees, so she delivers him a stern lecture about the health risks of cigarette smoking. Then she shoots him. Huh. I hate to say it, but if it wasn't for his firm stance on gun control, I think my grandfather actually probably would have approved of that. On more than one occasion, when we would be out to eat, I saw him go up to somebody who was smoking and put their cigarette out in their ashtray and then say, You'll thank me for this later. I'm a doctor. Which he was, but I am fairly certain nobody ever thanked him for that. Anyway, back to Godiva. She asks the other guards if they're enjoying the health food she provides for them. They say that they are, which is probably a good call. Back in France, the Titans are hanging out in their hotel room. Starfire acts like a tourist and admires the view of the Eiffel Tower. Beast Boy acts like a gross creep and admires his view of Starfire's butt. Fucking Beast Boy. 
After making a few phone calls to some of her government contacts, Wonder Girl manages to find out the location of Godiva's Swiss headquarters. The Titans head down to their limousine, instructing Danny to wait there at the hotel until they return with his parents. The pubescent secret agent objects to being left behind, but when they get downstairs, the Titans find that Danny is already waiting in the car. Huh. They boot the kid out of the vehicle and order the chauffeur to start driving. The driver attempts to comply with their request, but finds that the car is unable to get any traction. The back end of the car is hovering a few inches off the ground. Hmm. A smirking Danny leans mockingly against a lamppost. After a few seconds of letting the car uselessly spin its tires, Nightwing is like, Okay, whatever you're doing, knock it off and you can come with us. I'd rather not put a child in danger by bringing them to a gunfight with an unstable murderous international assassin, but we're running late, so whatever. A smugly grinning Danny hops in the car. Back in Switzerland, a badly beaten John Chase is tired of getting hypnotized into karateing his wife, and finally has agreed to talk. Godiva is like, cool. You know Ronald Reagan's bullshit strategic defense initiative program? The one he calls Star Wars and is supposed to zap nuclear missiles out of the sky with lasers? Well, here in a comic book universe, it actually works! There's a secret European defense satellite that's supposed to launch soon and hook up with the American system? If you tell me where it is, I'll let you and your wife stop karateing each other. Deal? John is like, Deal. The satellite is in a secret base near the French town of Crusay. Godiva is like, Thanks! Say, you look terrible from all the being beaten up. I'll have one of my guards bring you some milk. Oh, by the way, I'm crazy. Well, off to France! And with that, Godiva hops in her helicopter and heads to Crusay. A few minutes after she leaves, the Titans Kool-Aid man their way through the side of the building, beat up the remaining guards, and free the chases. Hooray! John fills his rescuers in on where Godiva's headed. The gang piles into their car and tells Danny to stay put with his parents. But when they get a few miles away, they see the uncanny adolescent waiting on the road ahead of them. Hmm. Figuring they may as well just give up and bring him along, the confused heroes gesture for Danny to join them in the car. A short while later, in Crusade, France, Godiva and a squad of her goons bust into the secret military base and kill a bunch of soldiers. The megalomaniacal malcontent has her ever-present cameraman film her as she stands in front of the space shuttle, which contains the satellite she intends to steal. She starts giving a little villain speech about how pretty and good at stealing she is, but is interrupted by the unexpected arrival of the Teen Titans. Starfire and Wonder Girl start punching at her, but Godiva eludes their blows and uses her mind control powers to make the two powerhouses start attacking their teammates instead of her. As our titular titans unwittingly participate in an impromptu intramural skirmish, Godiva makes her way to the control tower for the space shuttle. The self-obsessed supervillain is about to launch the shuttle to an undisclosed location of her choosing when Cyborg busts through the window with Danny close behind him. Godiva is momentarily taken aback, but she quickly recovers and mind controls Vic into doing more makeouts with her as she backhands the shit out of Danny. The diminutive would-be do-gooder is sent reeling. While he recovers, Godiva hits the launch button, and the shuttle's engines roar to life. Danny is horrified to note that several of the Titans are in the blast zone, and are about to be roasted alive by the ignition of the rocket fuel. 
The pint-sized espionage enthusiast has a moment of internal conflict. Apparently, he has some superpowers which he promised his parents he would never use in front of anyone. But if he doesn't use them now, his new pals will be incinerated. After a second of hesitation, Danny thinks real hard and levitates the titans out of harm's way. Oh, so he's telekinetic. Well, that explains... Honestly, only about a third of the weird shit he's been able to do, but it's better than nothing. As our perplexed protagonists clear their heads, Danny begins to explain his complicated backstory. His grandpa was a nuclear scientist who got exposed to some radiation, so Danny was born with telekinesis. Oh, well, that's it? Okay. The next day, Danny, his parents, and the Titans all meet up for some brunch in Paris. As they munch, Danny mentions that he heard Godiva say something that might be a clue as to where she was headed, but he'll only tell the Titans what it is if they let him come along on the mission. Dick objects, so Danny levitates his chair to the top of the Arc de Triomphe, then flies up to join him. For some reason, this convinces everyone that Danny has the maturity and discretion necessary to take part in this adventure. Sure. Why the fuck not? On a small tropical island near Tahiti, Godiva oversees a construction project. She's in the middle of giving a speech about how great she is and how smart a plan it is to sell the satellite she just stole to the highest bidder when she sees that one of her workers is about to take a bite out of a sandwich. She asks the guy if his sandwich has any red meat in it, and when he says that it does, she tosses a grenade at him and blows him up. Meanwhile, in a jungle somewhere in East Africa, the Titans are having a little chat with Deathstroke the Terminator, who I guess is their pal now. What the fuck, Titans? The amoral super assassin, who uses 90% of his brain, but only 50% of his eyeballs, has apparently started a semi-legal poaching operation, because of course he has. Jericho gives his evil dad a hug and asks what he knows about Godiva. The monocular menace is like, well, she's crazy, and she's good at murder. We used to assassin together, but that was before I decided to reform and become a good guy, which is demonstrated by the fact that I now hunt and sell endangered animals. You know, like a good guy. The Titans are like, Danny heard her say something about auctioning off a stolen satellite. Do you know where that's happening? Deathstroke is like, what kind of a legitimate businessman would I be if I didn't know where the auction of a stolen nuclear defense satellite was happening? It's on an island near Tahiti. Good luck, new best friends. It was nice seeing you, but now I have to go murder a giraffe or something. Goodbye! Fucking Deathstroke. Back on her tropical island, Godiva has assembled a couple dozen or so terrorists, international criminals, and strong-armed dictators who are all looking to bid on that satellite she stole. She gives them a little speech welcoming them to the island, and then is like, Actually, you know what? Me and my henchmen are just going to take all the money you guys were going to use to buy the satellite and then just keep that and the satellite. Pretty good plan, huh? She sends her goons around with some pillowcases and has the assorted bad guys stuff them with all the money they brought to the island with them. Things seem to be proceeding according to Godiva's plan, but then the Titans show up and start punching everybody. Hooray! The gang beats up most of the henchmen, and Raven rounds up the rest and uses her powers to make them feel really bad about themselves. But Godiva grabs her favorite cameraman and a bag of money and makes a break for it. 
Danny runs after her, but when he catches up to the enterprising psychopath, she's like, here's the thing. If you try to stop me, I'm going to push this button and blow up the satellite and all your friends who are standing near it. So, bye! Then she runs away again. Danny sees that the shuttle the satellite is presumably in is about to launch. He decides that it's up to him to stop that from happening, I guess? Honestly, this part is pretty unclear to me. I think maybe if the rocket launches, then the satellite is going to blow up. But it seems like if the satellite's going to blow up, it would be better if that happened in the air. But I guess not for some reason. Anyway, Danny flies himself to the top of the rocket and uses his powers to keep it from going anywhere. Or from exploding. Or something. While he's doing that, Cyborg spots Godiva and tries to intercept her. That goes about as well for him as it did the past couple of times. She uses her powers on him and then runs away. Bye, Godiva! Once she's gone, Vic returns to where the rest of the team is tying up hench people and tyrants and whatnot. Then they all notice that Danny's standing on top of a rocket and doing whatever it is that he's doing. Starfire and Wonder Girl rush over to help Danny out. They fly around for a minute, and then the rocket falls over. As Danny tumbles towards the water, Starfire scoops him out of the air. Then the rocket explodes, but nobody gets hurt because Danny stood on the rocket till it fell over, I guess? Hooray? Epilogue 1 A little while later in Scotland, in yet another of her identical mansions, Godiva celebrates the fact that she escaped with a shitload of money. She decides to spend some of her ill-gotten bounty by hiring a new acting instructor. She heads into the living room and greets the self-professed greatest actor in the world, Sir Alex Richards. No, not Sir Alex Richards! Epilogue 2 The next day, back at the Titan Tower, Danny and his parents are hanging out with the Titans. Danny announces that he doesn't want to be a secret agent anymore because the government was willing to let his parents die. Fair enough. His parents are fine with this decision, but if he isn't going on spying missions with them, they're going to need some place for him to stay. They consider a boarding school, or letting him stay with his uncle Adrian, but neither option sounds appealing to Danny. Wait a minute. Uncle Adrian? As in Adrian Chase? World's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase? I knew there was something I didn't like about this family. I guess Dick couldn't stand the thought of anyone being forced to live with a piece of shit like the world's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase. Because when he hears that that option is on the table, he's like, Hey, uh, how about if Danny just, I don't know, joins the Titans? Everyone agrees that that sounds like a great plan. So now, Danny Chase is a Teen Titan. Hooray? The end. I guess having Danny Chase around might not be so bad. I mean, if the Spy Kids movies taught me anything, it's that when a red-haired child is an international espionage agent, there's a good chance that Danny Trejo will show up at some point. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to that.
And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. How are you going? I'm doing okay. I've uh, been eating some non-traditional burritos lately. That's been fun. Mm. I just think things taste better when they're wrapped in a tortilla. You know what doesn't? That I learned as a, a child, I think, is uh, peanut butter and jelly. Oh, I beg to differ. Really? I mean, it has to be a flour tortilla. Mm-hmm. And you definitely have to use less filling than a traditional burrito. But you warm up a flour tortilla for a few seconds in the microwave and wrap up uh, peanut butter and jelly in it. Not bad. Really? I remember being so disappointed by that when I was a kid. I was like, this is going to be the best thing ever. Maybe... Maybe it was because my parents were hippies and I had like co-op peanut butter and jelly to put on it. Oh, or co-op tortillas, like blue corn tortillas or some shit. <laughs> it's like now I'm just covered in tortillas <laughs> and oil. Yeah, that may have been the case. Now, I made uh, some shoyu chicken the other day. So I had a burrito filled with shoyu chicken and rice and macaroni salad. And it was really good. Well, yeah, that sounds that sounds delicious. Yeah, and then I made some chicken shawarma, and uh, fuck it, I threw that in a tortilla with some tahini sauce and hummus that I made, and some rice, and that oh, was real good, too. Why the hell not? Yeah, here's a tip. Put things in a tortilla. <laughs> Unless your parents are hippies, then don't put things in their tortillas. Oh, yeah, especially their peanut butter. Man. That seems like such a trick. Hmm. Natural peanut butter. You really have to stir it. Oh, so long. Mm -hmm. I, it tastes, I guess, fine after you do, but it still is like the Ovaltine of regular peanut butter. <laughs> Ovaltine? That was, like, that was like mana from heaven. I remember the first time I had Ovaltine. <laughs> I was like, this is so sweet. I mean, it definitely had a lot of sugar in it. It was a big step up from carob. Ooh, did Mama Jim ever make you like a cup of hot carob instead of hot cocoa? Oh, gosh, no, I never, never had that. I just had like the little carob things that looked like little chocolate things. Oh, man, both carob and Ovaltine had that thing going for them where they were like, it's like chocolate and it's not any better for you than chocolate, but we made it taste like medicine. So now it's health food. I will say this in their defense. It took mom less long than most hippies to realize that carob was bullshit. It was not a phase that lasted. Yeah. <laughs> Day late and a dollar short. Well, do you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Oh, man, I had a lot of fun reading all the many pages of this comic book. I'm glad to hear that. I think I had a kind of different experience. I enjoyed it more, I think, the second time reading it through, but still eh, not my favorite. Was it the problematic, I don't know, Orientalism? I mean, that didn't help. But even without that, it just didn't land for me. I felt like both tonally and literally it was all over the place. The events of the comic took place in seven different countries and nine different cities within those countries. And as near as I can tell, most of those geographical changes 
for absolutely no reason, and sometimes the art team didn't seem to notice that there were supposed to be geographical changes, but mostly, Danny Chase just annoyed the shit out of me. Oh, this is funny. Yeah, we have almost, like, opposite takes on this. Oh. I stopped taking notes slash complaints after, like, I don't know, page three or four about, like, how the hell did they get there? Why is this happening? (laughs) And then I just let it wash over me and with the logic of, like, this is, like, one of those low-budget 80s action movies that I loved as a kid where just all the shit happens that doesn't make any damn sense. And you just don't worry about how did they get there? Why didn't that guy die in that explosion? You know? I get that. And I think that is the level at which this comic works best. I think it makes sense that it's an annual because it does feel like a standalone comic book that kind of takes place in a universe separate from the other Teen Titans stuff. It honestly seemed more like a pilot for a Danny Chase international spy Saturday morning cartoon than it did a Teen Titans comic book, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that was kind of the other fun thing about it for me, too, because I tried to put myself in the frame of mind of like, okay, if I was a kid reading this in the 80s, I'd be like, dude, that kid's awesome. Like, you know, yeah, he's being a snot to all these older teenagers and has a good sense of himself and is a real hero okay wow we really just had way different takes on this to me this was kind of the issue where it seemed like oh no they're bringing in a cousin oliver slash scrappy do slash chachi slash redheaded kid on different strokes you know okay wait a minute how long do they let him stay on the team He's joining the team, Corey. I know, but I just thought maybe that was like a until his parents get back from their next mission thing. He's going to be in at least the next issue. And I think he is like it introduces him as did you read the letters column at the end of it? Marf Wolfman talking about the character. I did not. He talked about how he's like, well, the Teen Titans are starting to get older. So I wanted to introduce a younger character on the team since many of them have aged out of their teens. And in a certain sense, that kind of makes sense. But is it just like we're going by median age now? (laughs) Like, well, we've got four of them that are in their 20s now. So if we put in one who's barely 13, then they're still Teen Titans. Yeah, the ages of them have been a, you know, hey, this doesn't add up. But, you know, who cares, right? It's like they're aging slowly. Very slowly, considering that Robin was first introduced as, I think he was younger when he was first introduced. Like, he was probably 9 or 10. But that was in, like, 1941, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, if you age that slowly... (laughs) Okay, he's 20, but he's also kind of 13. Yeah, I'll buy that. I guess if you put in a solid four decades as a teenager, it kind of becomes an honorific title. I'm really glad to hear that you like Danny Chase, because I really did try to give him a fair shake, but I am nervous about him. And he really did just annoy me in this comic book. It struck me as just like, oh, and he's got superpowers that are really, really nebulous. He has, like, apparently really, really powerful telekinesis. And he gets to be a secret agent. He introduces himself as 14, but he is described later as being 13, which I think is not necessarily a mistake. I think it would make sense that he would lie about his age. But I don't know. I got big Scrappy-Doo vibes from this kid. Yeah, I I mean, I could see that. But 
again, putting myself in the space of uh, being a 13-year-old kid or 14-year-old kid reading this. I'd just be like, dude, this is fucking awesome. Maybe. To me, it reads much more like I think I would be annoyed that a grown-up thought this was what a 13-year-old was like. Oh, you you would have thought that at 13, I'm sure. But Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would have. I think that's more common than you'd think. I think that's why, like, the Teen Titans are, like, marketed at people a little bit younger than them. I think it's easier to be like, oh, maybe that's what older teens are like. They seem cool like that. That's what I'll be like when I'm that age. Rather than... Wait, you think this is what I'm like? Fuck you. You know? Yeah. Fortunately, most of my recollections from that era are fuzzy at best. Oh, I am very grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that, you know, we both grew up before the prevalence of social media, so we weren't tempted to record our thoughts. Oh, God. (laughs) Broadcast them to the world. I'm also minorly thankful that I was so terrible at keeping a diary. Oh, man. Yeah, I recall, gosh, it was maybe over a decade ago now where I had found some song lyrics that you had written and I got really excited. And I was like, oh, I found these. You're like, I don't want that. Throw it away. Yeah, that is accurate. I was so (laughs) relieved. I found an old diary that I got when I was like seven or eight. And I was really excited about it. I really wanted to have a diary. And there is one entry in that diary. And it says, Dear Diary, today I got a... I stopped writing and there's no other entrance in it. (laughs) I didn't even finish writing diary. Honestly, I'm just so surprised that you liked Danny Chase so much. I'm really glad that you did, but it's just so counter to my experience with the character. So maybe I will come around to your way of thinking on him. Or if he sticks around, I'll come around to yours. (laughs) Or maybe we'll meet in the middle. Who knows? Sounds good. To me, part of, I think, my aversion to the character is his character design looks like a cross between Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch and the redheaded kid from Different Strokes. And also that he seems to be drawn so much younger than the not just the rest of the characters, but then I think 13. He, he looks like he's about 10 or so, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is probably partly due to Michael Collins having a generally more cartoony style. I'm curious to see how that translates when we get back to having regular artists. Because, like I said, this is an annual. It feels more like a standalone story, which is why it is odd that it has so many ramifications in the regular title going forward. It's weird because the last issue we covered, really nothing seemed to happen except for characters sitting around and talking about their feelings. But it felt so much higher stakes than this story where there's super spies and a satellite's getting stolen and people die and a major character's parents are in danger of dying, the whole issue. It never felt like anything important was going to happen. Because the story was so different in tone, It made me feel like it must be a standalone issue, which means that by the end of it, everything needs to return to the status quo. Hmm. You know? I don't know. I got kind of wrapped up in it until I realized that the Star Wars satellite was the thing they were after. And I was like, oh, it turned (laughs) out that never did anything and didn't really work. It was a giant waste of money. That definitely did lower the stakes as well. Yeah. I also did think back to the Danny Chase front. 
The one thing that makes me think that he will fit in just fine with the Teen Titans is that at one point he says, oh, I can never use my powers in front of every anybody because I promised my parents. So he lets the major villain get away and then does eventually break down when the Titans almost die and I guess opens the pod bay doors and beams them down to Earth in some kind of a telekinesis tractor beam. But then a couple pages later, he just uses his powers to fly up to the top of the Arc de Triomphe in the middle of the day in front of a huge crowd. He throws Robin up there to get him to agree. And his parents are like, oh, we're so proud. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, you told him never to do that. Yeah. But like I said, it it makes me think he will fit in just fine with his new pals. Yeah, Titan material for sure. I think the other reason this had kind of more of a Saturday morning cartoony type feel is that the art was a much more cartoony style. What did you think of the artwork in this issue? Yeah, it bugged me, honestly, at first because of the cartooniness. But then once I got into it, yeah, it was like I just like I said, I kind of got immersed in the like, oh, this is just an action show cartoon kind of feel. I think it worked for the type of story that it was telling. I'm not sure whether... That was the intent with the script. I don't know how closely they worked together, but it mostly didn't end up bothering me that much. There were certain things I I wasn't quite sure what to make of the depiction of Godiva. She seemed significantly more cartoony looking than the other characters, and I think that can be problematic when she's one of the few non-white characters in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I noticed that like just from the outset to that. I think my first note to myself was like, she looks like a Disney character. And not a Disney hero. Oh no, I said Disney baddie. Yeah. And her behavior is very cartoony as well. I wrote down that she's like an evil Bugs Bunny. And then in parentheses, I had, so Woody Woodpecker, (laughs) who I always think of as the evil version of Bugs Bunny. Because they both use like psychopathic, chaotic trickster powers and one-liners to confound their enemies, which is very much what Godiva does in this. But Bugs Bunny does it when a hunter is trying to kill him, or an Old West outlaw is trying to kill him, or a Martian is trying to destroy the Earth and kill him. Whereas Woody Woodpecker does it when, like, a walrus is trying to have a picnic. Yeah, since I was a child, his laugh and his behavior graded. On my nerves. Such an asshole. He's a... And a bird. Tough but fair. But Godiva has very similar behavior to him. I wish that the character was more specific in her focus, because she has a lot of different traits that are just kind of piled together. The main one, I think, is probably the fact that she is completely megalomaniacal and sees herself as a big star and wants everything she does videotaped. And that makes sense with some of the other things about her. But then other aspects of her character are just like, she's also hypersexualized. She's also obsessed with health food. She's there. There's just so many weird little things that I was like, I wish they'd kind of just focused on one aspect of her character. And the fact that she is kind of just slapped together, it seems like, is highlighted when Deathstroke is talking about her, and we'll get back to him later. And he's like, 
And I guess now she's got hypnotic powers. Like, mm -hmm. why introduce that element? This is her first appearance. She doesn't have any backstory before this issue. It never explains why she has hypnotic powers now. So why not just make it that she's always had the hypnotic powers? Yeah, there's a lot of problems with this character. On on one hand, I think it's she's potentially super interesting because so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. But again, we're running into this thing of like, okay, so powerful, but also a, a lady. Mm -hmm. So, you know, totally bonkers. And it like wasn't really an interesting exploration of why she was bonkers in the way that she was bonkers. It was just more so like, we're going to layer all these weirdnesses on top of one another. Mm -hmm. So she's not such a scary character. She does murder a bunch of people. And so I think they're going for like a chaotic, like Joker-like quality to her, which is maybe why she attacked an ocean liner in the opening pages. It really never explains why she decided to, in the middle of this huge high stakes caper that she's pulling, fly to New York, blow a hole in the side of a tanker, fight the Teen Titans, and then go back to her original caper. That was really confusing for me. <laughs> Dude, all the travel in this is so confusing. Like, by then, I was just like, okay, of course, yeah, whatever. Well, that confusion is compounded by the fact that her headquarters is described as being in three different locations. On page three, we see a picture of this pagoda-style-looking mansion that is described as being outside of Tokyo, and you see this looming mountain behind it. Then, on page 12, it shows a picture of the same building with the same background, and it says, The Swiss Alps. Yeah, I, I flipped back and forth a bunch of times between those, and the background is different. Is it? To me, it looked like in both images, the building was on a grassy knoll with one giant mountain in the background. Mm -hmm. But the but the trees are different. The one in Switzerland is is alpine trees, and the the mountain in the Tokyo ones made to look kind of like Mount Fuji. So my takeaway from that is just like she's building the same palace everywhere. Okay, so that's an intentional joke that they're doing, or callback, or something. Because at the end of the comic book, it is the same building but now it is in scotland mm -hmm. exactly yeah and we meet a character who is going to be her acting teacher who it treats it like it's a joke that it's this guy and i was like who is this guy supposed to be i was like this must be an established dc character or something no sir alex richards this is his only appearance in a comic book and i don't think he's based on a real person and i was like what well, i is this a joke I don't get? Yeah, I googled that for a minute too. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm I, clearly I'm missing something here. But no, I think it's just like he's a he's a turd. Yeah, so they're gonna get along fine. Yeah, maybe it's the joke is supposed to just be like, oh, he's smoking a pipe, so she's gonna kill him. Yeah, possible. But he says he's the best actor in the world, and I I don't know. I really did not get what was going on with that. I don't really get it if it's a joke that she has the same headquarters in three different cities around the world. The globe hopping in this comic book, it just kind of unmoored me a little bit every time. Yeah, I just thought it was like another expression of her zaniness. It's a mm -hmm. bad character. Also, we talked around it a little bit, but she is described in this issue as having a father who is a Chinese prince and a mother who was an African princess. 
don't get me wrong, I am glad to have more diversity in the book, but when you don't have more representation and your only example of representation in the book is of someone who is a psychotic, self-described, crazy, hypersexualized woman who's drawn and depicted as a cartoon, it makes you wonder what they're trying to say with that. Especially because this is the second mixed-race Asian woman that Marv Wolfman has introduced who is a hypersexualized, murderous assassin, because there was also Cheshire. And I believe those are the only women of Asian heritage that he's introduced, so not a great track record in terms of diversity. Well, don't give a short shrift to the United Nations of brown dictators that she's <laughs> trying to sell the weapons to. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. There are more non-whites in the book. They are all evil, strong-armed dictators from around the globe. We have a fez, some other <laughs> ostensibly Arab headgear. Yeah. Some military stuff. Good call. It, yes, it's a real rainbow coalition. It's that I was just like, ooh. That's not good. No, that definitely wasn't great. And speaking of not great, let's get back to Deathstroke. Because what the fuck is he doing in this book? Uh, hugging Joey, <laughs> capturing endangered animals. Yeah, it really does look like he's basically saying, well, okay, I know we've had our differences in the past, but I've put my life back together. I'm a good guy now and the way that i'm demonstrating that i can be completely trusted is that i've put my past of murder and pedophilia behind me and taken up poaching mm -hmm. man fuck that yep started gross remains gross yeah and in addition to that also he's just like hey joey i've really appreciated all the letters you've sent me didn't answer any of them. <laughs> the way he excused himself from having done that is like, I didn't have the wherewithal to answer any of your letters, estranged son. To which Joey just signs, I love you. Yeah. Kind of gave him a get out of jail free card there. I would like to have seen him squirm a little more. No, he doesn't squirm at all. And none of the Titans make him squirm. The closest they come is when Starfire says, we don't hunt on Tamaran, except for fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. She does follow that up with they don't kill the animals, but I was like, when I started reading that, I was like, oh, you know that makes it worse, right? <laughs> that gave me a happy flashback to when we got to see them do that. Oh, when they were hunting the talking Groucho Marx beast in mm -hmm. on Tamaran. Yep, good times. Simpler times. Indeed. Yeah, the unearned redemption of Deathstroke is really frustrating for me. And you see it continued here and, and kind of confirmed. I think to a certain extent, it's kind of inevitable in comics that if you make a villain that people see as cool, they will want him to be the protagonist of a book, and then he becomes a de facto hero. You see that happen a lot. It's kind of a pro wrestling thing, where if there's a cool heel, and people like what a good bad guy he is, then eventually he becomes a good guy. Mm-hmm. It's different in comics when you see him do the kind of heinous shit that Deathstroke has done. They really built him up to be a piece of shit, and there's really never addressing in-universe the shit that went down with 
Terra other than him basically saying, no, it was okay that I sexually abused a 15-year-old girl because she was evil. And everybody shakes hands and agrees that that's fine. Yeah, that was and is uncomfortable, to say the least. Yeah. There's actually, I read a comic book, the recent comic book, that addresses that issue from a different character's point of view. It's the third issue of The Other History of the DC Universe. It tells the story of the hero Katana, who was part of Batman and the Outsiders, and it's really, really good. Hmm. But there is a section where it addresses her thoughts on that issue, and it's very well done. But yeah, man, fuck Deathstroke. He, he doesn't get to be a good guy, unless you, like, literally in-universe erase that any of that shit happened, you know? Like, that could have been a, you could have done that on Crisis on Infinite Earths, I guess. Or, like, give him a new backstory or retcon it in some way that actually addresses it. But to just have him now hang out with the Teen Titans and they're all friends is really creepy and gross. And especially now that he's gone legit as an animal poacher in Africa. Yeah, and it's a really weird, I guess, redemption arc. That's not the right word for it. It's not a redemption arc, it's a redemption light switch, you know? <laughs> and it just feels really unearned. Also, I don't understand why it was in this book. It doesn't forward the plot at all. It's just like a weird little cameo. They track him down and go and seek him out and spend a page chatting with him so that they can learn about Godiva, because I guess he knows Godiva from the past. and. The intel they get from him is, oh, her? Yeah, she's crazy. You should probably kill her or something. Yeah, I mean, I guess I figure the reason this was here was they were like, well, it's an annual. So, you know, bring out the characters. And uh, oh, they haven't been to uh, the African continent yet. Yeah, you got to touch all the bases. I was surprised they didn't have to visit Godiva's headquarters on Antarctica. It, it starts in Tokyo, then... Cuts to New York, then we go to DC, then the Titans fly to meet Danny in France so that they can drive to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Then from Switzerland, they go to a different part of France, then they go to Africa, and then they go to Tahiti, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure I'm missing a couple too. It ends in Scotland. Um, were they in London? They were in London, right? I think they were in London at one point, but I might be confused about that because almost none of the location changes seemed... There's no reason why the story couldn't have, for the most part, taken place in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad it wasn't an issue for you. For me, it took me out of the story and just kept me confused. Yeah, no, the first few changes, I was like, what the hell? And I mean, just time and space in general is confusing in this which i guess to a degree is explained by danny chase's uh, telekinetic ability but like at the very beginning his parents get kidnapped on fast motorcycles and drive away leaving him in the dust in the next panel he's like ah, i found their secret headquarters at the base of mount fuji i was like dude how did you that's like a long bus ride from tokyo how did you do that i was sure that he could teleport at first and I'm not entirely convinced that he can't teleport mm -hmm. because there are other parts in the book where like 
Okay, I get that he could use his telekinesis to fly down to the street and meet the Titans outside their car. And they're like, whoa, how do you get down here so quick? But later on, they drive away from someplace and then they see him a ways down the road. So either he can fly really fast using his telekinesis or maybe he can teleport or maybe he's got Bugs Bunny meta narrative powers. I don't fucking know. Bugs Bunny meta narrative powers. Now that is a good one to have. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of Bugs Bunny's thing, which Godiva does not seem to have in the same way. But, you know, he takes advantage of the fact that he is the only character that knows he is a cartoon. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, maybe Danny Chase is that much of a point of view character that he does that. We do see that he has a subscription to the Teen Titans comic book. Yeah, that was kind of one of the first times I remember that that kind of fourth wall breaking sort of uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also see that he has read all of the CBI files on the Teen Titans, and it was amusing to me that Donna was like, oh, he knows my secret identity. And I was like, wait, I can't keep track of this, because we just learned that Starfire doesn't have a secret identity. You still do? I think that it's just finally <laughs> the writers are realizing, okay, this is just a farce we have to start like owning up to the fact that everybody knows who they are yeah i think you could be right there were a couple of interesting choices of phrasing in this issue <laughs> get inside me joey <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely one of them yeah at one point dick and jericho are riding in a motorcycle and the motorcycle is about to crash and dick yells Get inside me, Joey. We're going <laughs> overboard. Uh, and it very much cracked me up. Just you, you might want to work on your phrasing. I know. I was uh, having some Archer moments. On page 35, there's a bit of dialogue back and forth that basically acknowledges that so many of the ancillary characters in all these comic books are have that sort of Star Trek red shirt role where they're talking about goons are for knocking down and, <laughs> oh, they must be masochists and cyborgs like, do you guys even have insurance? Yeah, I actually thought that was pretty fun. Uh-huh. I like that too. I would love a more exploration of whether that is a union job, you know, shit like that. The roles that these flunkies do play in the DC universe. I think that can be a lot of fun to explore. It sadly doesn't seem to come up for the characters that uh, Godiva kills because she's a health food junkie, because there is more than one person that she just murders for comedic effect, I think it's supposed to be. Those jokes didn't really quite land with me. I saw where they were going with them, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of gross, right? Because she's the punchline of like, look how crazy this lady is. Mm -hmm. When she shoots the guy for smoking because smoking is bad for his health. Like, that one makes a lot more sense than when she shoots the guy for eating red meat around her. That one, I was just like, okay, first of all, there's no such thing as secondhand red meat. And for another thing, I can see where, especially in the 80s, you could forget that you're not supposed to smoke 
someplace. Although the fact that you could forget that you're not supposed to smoke indoors is from a 2021 perspective, just like, oh, that's right. That did used to be more of a thing. Mm -hmm. But with the second guy, if he is a construction worker on this island and she has talked before about the fact that she provides all their meals for them, I don't see how you can procure and then eat red meat without realizing it. Unless this guy is Shaft, and he does not look like Shaft. Like, I don't think he ate seven hot dogs without realizing it. I think he just absentmindedly imported and ate a cheeseburger? What's he say? I, er, I made a mistake. Yeah, I made a mistake, princess. I, I, please don't hurt me. I swear I'll never. How did he get that sandwich? Oh, man, he he was like, I am sick of eating all this broccoli and Brussels sprouts, because she does say that's what she's making all the crew eat. Mm-hmm. And so he probably just went to the store. He went, up, went off campus and brought it back. Yeah. And just ate it in front. Okay. It's like, man, I could use a roast beef sandwich. Okay. See, I had gotten the impression that they were on a previously uninhabited island. Well, it could be. Yeah, in that case, my my theory is not so good. But yeah, maybe down the street from the stronghold, there there's just a convenience store. Well, you know, commerce brings commerce, right? So all these uh, construction workers showing up, there's probably some little like stands with mm-hmm. snacks and things. Yeah, I was picturing a more company store type situation, but you raise a good point. Thank you. Well, you ready to get into the minutia? Let's do it. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Cory, what do you feel like starting off with? Man, why don't we jump into what might <laughs> take a long time and talk about clothing? Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy well i think i may have to narrow it down to like the top three for lady godiva because she has a number of costume changes throughout this book Mm -hmm. she has some mid-scene costume changes happening which i think makes sense for her character if they were to narrow her character down more to being megalomaniacal reality star which is interesting. Her character does hit a lot of the notes of a reality star long before that was a thing. Oh, I know. I was thinking if TikTok and Instagram and whatnot were <laughs> around at this era, she would have so many followers. Oh, absolutely. And frankly, her character would make a lot more sense. I know. Yeah. Where uh, to begin? Probably on page two, where she's on a pink motorcycle that. I can't tell if it's vampire or vampire is the name of the motorcycle. And she's just got this bonkers leather riding outfit with boots that come up to mid-thigh, unzipped to the navel. That's like a black, shiny leather. The motorcycle is pink. She's got this bright red scarf. And uh, it's getting kind of a purple rain vibe. Oh, yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, it's funny. When you were saying that like her boots come up mid-thigh, I was like, yeah, and her... V-neck goes down to about mid-thigh. <laughs> yeah, it is risque. It's funny that you mentioned the vampire as perhaps being the name of her motorcycle helmet, because I think my favorite of her outfits, I called 
power clashing Vampirella with Ugg boots and Santa skirt. And that is on page 12. Oh, thank goodness you could describe that. I just wrote, <laughs> what is she wearing? That was one of my other top threes. Yeah, I don't know how much of a word picture the phrase that I put together actually paints, but I think it is accurate that it is power clashing Vampirella with Ugg boots and Santa skirt. She has a, a Vampirella type outfit that is, you know, essentially suspenders that end in underpants. But the top half of them are, I think, tiger print. It's white and bright red zebra stripes. And then the underpants part of them are leopard or possibly cow print, depending on how they're colored in. Mm -hmm. And then around that, she has like a half skirt that is orange and fur lined, like with white fur like you might see on a Santa suit. And she is wearing, like, red Ugg boots that have white fur cuffs. Mm -hmm. With heels. Well, of course. It's uh, striking. She's also got this really cool thing that she's done for her branding, I guess, that is like a, a circle with lines inscribed in it that make kind of a stylized G. Oh, I noticed that that was a running thing. That is the one constant between all of her outfits. I didn't get that that made it look like a G, because it doesn't as much for me. No, not, not the way it's drawn there, but that was kind of how I was thinking it was supposed to be. Like, all her stuff has that Godiva kind of logo. Yeah, I like her big, giant coin earrings that have that going on on it. I think it's a cool look. Uh, I'm having trouble still even looking at it now, seeing the G in it. Oh, in that panel, it's, it's like they're just scribbles, but some of the other ones where they kind of zoom in, you can see their G's. Okay. Like on page 13. I guess? Okay. <laughs> it's like a, a runic G. <laughs> gotcha. It's actually more like a Y. Maybe I'm not right. Yeah, but maybe you are. The alphabet is a harsh mistress. She also on that page is doing something that I was trying to make sense of because she can take over people's minds and hypnotize them instantly and make them do whatever she wants, uh, which she demonstrates by making Cyborg make out with her a couple of times, making Danny Chase's parents fight each other, and alluding to the fact that she could make Mr. Chase have sex with her until he dies. But she's using that to make them fight each other so that they will eventually break and tell her their secrets, couldn't she just hypnotize them and make them tell her their secrets? I don't know. I mean, seems like she just would have done that. Sure does. But sorry, back to the fashion. I liked her military jumpsuit. Breakaway. Yes, and she demonstrates the fact that it is breakaway like a couple panels later. But I like the military look better than the outfit that she has on under it but the uh yeah the military uniform it's just a lime green deep v jumpsuit i think it's a pretty solid look on the page that that first appears we also see that the army that she is seizing the satellite from i guess maybe the french standing army isn't as large as it used to be because they have borrowed some troops from McDonald's, perhaps? Because <laughs> we see one of the soldiers has a big red armband with a yellow M on it that 
really does look like the McDonald's logo. Yeah, I was like, what is that military for? I was trying to think if there were any military McDonald's land characters. I guess, does the filet fish pirate have a name? Because mm. he's probably a captain, right? Yeah, I don't know. I think this guy was more of a McCorporal. Yeah. Or Sergeant Cheeseburger. He's pretty old for a sergeant. I think by now he would have risen to the rank of Grimace. That's probably a rank, right? I don't know. <laughs> have we talked about the fact that I always thought that the police officer, who was apparently Big Mac, was named Constable Hamburger? I'm sure it's come up. <laughs> I don't understand why they, whoever they are, don't pay us to <laughs> write this copy. Pick up all the cheeseburgers we could sell. I mean, who doesn't associate a militarized police state with fun, family-friendly dining? Yeah, charming. Back to fashion. The guy who gets murdered for eating a, I don't know, off-campus lunch hamburger back at the compound, I called him Ascot Schlub because he's like a schlubby, working-class, blue-collar guy, but he is also wearing an ascot. Wait a and minute. I thought, good for him. Hold on. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he's got a ball cap, blue jeans, tank top, and an ascot. He's got like a really stiff brim on his ball cap, too. He looks like a bro. Yeah, I think in earlier panels, it looks like it's supposed to be a construction helmet, but mostly it looks like a baseball hat. And man, he is sweating up a storm, I think. Yeah, well, it's hot there, and uh, he shouldn't be eating red meat in that kind of heat, I guess. Hmm. Also, characters in this book who are sweating are sweating so, so much. Mm -hmm. We see that a few pages where when Danny is using his telekinesis as hard as he can, it really does look like just pools of water are shooting out of his nose and forehead. And you see that earlier when Raven is healing Beast Boy. It looks like she had just hopped out of the river. Well, that's a lot of that's tears. Uh on her forehead? Well, she's <laughs> probably ugly crying. She's just batting her eyelashes as she cries so heavily that she essentially turns into a sprinkler? Yeah. Oh, okay. Any other fashion? Well, speaking of henchmen, do you remember those toys that we got at, gosh, it's like a toy store in San Francisco maybe or something that were like these, these uh, Japanese figurines of these Dudes wearing orange and yellow and red jumpsuits. Yes, I do. We got those at the giant robots store. Yeah. And they're just doing stuff like one guy's like offering a cup of water to a lady that's resting on a couch and they're like just doing weird stuff you wouldn't associate with like men wearing jumpsuits. But all the henchmen look like those dudes, but they're wearing moon boots. Yes, they are wearing bodysuits with differently colored moon boots and the colors of those outfits and boots change depending on which scene they are henching in but yeah i noticed that as well yeah those toys that you're talking about they were statuettes that were depicting safety card information from japanese like like safety pamphlets uh sort of so i made a couple japanese coworkers really uncomfortable <laughs> by asking them to translate what the thing said oh what did they say they didn't give me an exact translation, but like the one where it's the lady resting on the couch and the guy offering her a cup of water. Essentially, what the card said was he was trying to make a decision of to 
be a good person and give her the water or to um, uh, molest her. Oh, shit. Yeah. I didn't know that. Nope. I was like, I just thought this and these were cute toys. Oh, my. I, I, I don't know. There may have been something lost in translation, but just judging by the <laughs> awkwardness of the whole situation and the way that it was explained to me, that was my takeaway from it. Oh, dear. I was like, okay, I can't have toys from other cultures that where I don't speak the language anymore. Tough but fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that I got has one jumpsuit figure comfort another jumpsuit figure as they are standing over a toilet and one of them looks like they're throwing up into it. Now that I know it's like a super fucked up version of Goofus and Gallant, I have even less idea what's going on in that. Yeah. We should also probably talk about Alex Richards. I'm sorry, Sir Alex Richards the greatest actor in the universe's outfit. Dude, we got to. I mean, he's got an ascot too, but he is no schlub. No, sir. In the words of off-brand TLC, no schlubs. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to remember the lyric about, like, driving in his friend's car, like, trying (laughs) to hit on you. Like, he's not going to borrow his friend's ascot. Leaning out the side of his best friend's ride. Yeah. Um... Neck coming out the top of his friend's ascot. There you go. No schlubs. Oh. A schlub is a man who can't get no engine from me. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, TLC. But Sir Alex Richards is no schlub. He is smoking a pipe. He also has an ascot, but he has a tie pin in the middle of his ascot, which he is wearing over a pink and white striped dress shirt. And he has a matching pocket square coming out of the pocket of his tan blazer that he is wearing as part of his three-piece suit. It is a heck of a look. Oh, and uh, also he's got a monocle, because mm-hmm. of course he fucking does. Yeah, no, he's, he is clearly the greatest actor. Mm-hmm. And in case there was any doubt, he says, I am Sir Alex Richards, the world's greatest actor. Well, Corey, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozone. Yeah. Oh, the new ones, that, that is an improvement. More of a foghorn than air horn, but uh, not bad. Thank you. As those horns indicate, we've got some natty bees going on in this issue. Three of Triple them that I bee. counted. I'm sorry, what was that? I said triple Natty B. I got excited. I am sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. It's an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I counted three. I'm glad that you had the same count as me. Both Danny and Cyborg call people bozos on various occasions. I think Vic has a couple. Danny has just the one. Yep, that's what I got. In addition to that, we've also got some pretty great other bozone moments where characters call each other bozos metaphorically rather than literally. Of those, I believe my favorite is something that Beast Boy says when he is a bird sitting on Cyborg's shoulder. Kids, I'd like to blow them all up. And Cyborg seconds that. Yeah, I know where we can start. (laughs) Good for you. Mm -hmm. He's really calling Danny a bozo there. And by extension, all children. I had note of that, too. Yeah, that that was kind of a fun thing about the banter in this issue was, like, Beast Boy is finally, like, realizing, like, 
I'm not like that. And everybody else is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, you're actually worse. Significantly worse in this issue as well, which will come up later. Ugh. Yeah. Any other Bozone moments you want to point out? I had one that at first I thought was like an interesting thing, and then I had a learning, and that was uh, Cyborg referring to the uh, the UN of <laughs> brown dictators as tinplate tyrants. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good zing. But I looked it up to make sure that it wasn't something awful, as you have to do in yeah. these comic books. And I don't know that it's awful, but it's a pejorative term that was uh, coined in the days of the British Empire that referred to the Victorian innovation of the tin pot, like basically a cheap metal container, kind of the forerunner of the tin can. Mm-hmm. And it was how they referred to the people that rose to power in the former colonies. Oh. So, bad job, Cyborg. (laughs) I guess you didn't know. Or he did. Yeah. Well, that does scratch off one of my choices for our next category, Corey, but it's time for a battle of the band names. I'm just gonna scratch (laughs) Tin Plate Tyrant off of that. Well, I mean, technically it was Tin Pot Tyrants. I, oh. I couldn't find tin plate tyrants on the uh, interwebs, so maybe maybe you're, you're okay. It's a little bit better, but it's still probably not the best choice of a band name. Now, in last week's competition, the Writhing Obscenities continued their roller coaster ride of success. I guess not really a roller coaster, because uh, it is just continuing to go up. But... Perhaps in this issue, there will be a band name that can bring them down. Were you able to find one? Yeah, I had a a few choices. My first one, which was uh, King Faraday, named for the uh, ersatz FBI chief, Mm -hmm. uh, actually turns out to be a musician. I think that makes sense. Yep. So can't use that. Uh, The next one I totally thought would be a band name, but I couldn't find it. And so I would like to submit a thousand pound gorilla. Oh, Thousand Pound Gorilla's not bad. Mm-hmm. What kind of music do you think Thousand Pound Gorilla makes? Um, Corey, Corey, the correct answer? Any kind it wants. That's right. <laughs> yeah, let's just leave it at that. Okay, tough but fair. I think my favorite is the result of a typo, but I think it makes for a pretty damn good band name. After... Joey has followed Dick's instructions and gotten inside him. The caption informs us that Nightwing's lips give a momentar smile. I caught that as well. Joe Wilson is fine. Momentar. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be momentary, but (laughs) momentar sounds like a pretty fucking badass hard rock band. Mm, Sounds like a... Like a He-Man bad guy. Oh, I can see that too. Could be both. I'm pretty sure Whiplash is both. But as for Momentar, I looked it up. It is not a band name already. It is the name of some kind of a financial planning app. But I think there's significant disambiguation between hard rock band and financial planning app that uh, we can let that slide, avoid any lawsuits. So I think my vote is probably for Momentar. Did you have any others? Yeah, I, I like Momentar. I guess they would play, what, hard math rock? <laughs> Mathcore? 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's called a uh, calculus rock because uh, it's hard math. Yeah, I had a couple other choices. One is just straight up uh, Sir Alex Richards. Ooh, that's pretty good. I guess he just, you know, he probably plays some jaunty tunes on his acoustic guitar. Man, I feel like there have been a couple of points in the last few years when fashion monocles have almost made inroads into the mainstream. And I feel like if anybody could do that, it would be Sir Alex Richards. Oh, man, if that was going to happen, it would happen here. <laughs> pretty, that is absolutely true. Pretty sure of that. So, yeah, I had to toss it between Sir Alex Richards and my last offering is My Fertile Brain. Oh, My Fertile Brain's pretty good. I think for me, it comes down to My Fertile Brain or Momentar. But uh, I could go either way on that one. W- where are you leaning? Well, the thing I can't figure out what kind of music My Fertile Brain plays. Um, like electronic music, maybe? You know, I can see it being that. I can see it being like shoegaze. Mm-hmm. That might just be because it starts with a my. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my bloody Valentine. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm probably going to go with Momentar. Is that okay with you? Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's give Momentar hard math. Uh, sorry, calculus rock? Calculus rock. Which just, I, man, that sounds hard to listen to, but it's it's probably good if you just give it a chance. Yeah, I don't think it's like super mathy. I think it's just hard rock and math rock. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like doing quadratic equations in there and shit. Mm-hmm. Quadratic equations, that's not calculus, is it? Um, I don't remember. It's It's a math thing. <laughs> it's definitely a math thing. That sounds like trigonometry. Mm. I don't know what all the math things are. I used to be okay at math, but I was never good. Yeah, I was always pretty bad at it. Yeah. I was really good at it when it was all numbers. And then when it was mostly numbers with some letters, I was okay. And then once it was all letters, I was like, what the fuck is even happening? Yeah, it was like IKEA assembly instructions for furniture, but you have this calculator. And if you fuck up at some point and you get to the end, you're like, I got this extra bolt and I don't know where I left it out. Yeah, I don't either. I think what might make the IKEA furniture assembly be potentially even worse than doing math is that when you're assembling furniture, there's no way to just type in the number 80,085 and make the word boobs. Yep. So, advantage math? (laughs) It's a good thing we went with uh, your choice. Yeah. The only other band name that I had, which I looked up and it turns out it is already a band, and I figured it probably would be, was Damn the Torpedoes, which it turns out is America's number one Tom Petty cover band. I don't understand. Did he sing about naval things? It was the name of one of his albums. Oh, really? Yeah. He may have sung about naval things. He had a long and storied career, that is true. He did. He was a traveling Wilbury. Among other things. Let's not limit him to that supergroup. Eh, I think he's probably best known as being the guy in the traveling Wilburys who sounded like Bob Dylan, but wasn't Bob Dylan. <laughs> the guy in the traveling Wilburys with the tallest hat. Mm. Gosh, that sounds derisive. I don't mean to do that. I, I like his music. I don't think it's derisive to say somebody has a tall hat. Yeah, 
Yeah, but to like be like, out of the rock supergroup, that's what you were known for. Well, it's not his fault Roy Orbison didn't wear bigger hats. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? In a very general sense, like that whole idea of like kid hero, multiple set changes, things not really making any sense along for the ride, wild action caper. Um, It seemed very 80s. <laughs> yeah, specifically, there were a couple like it seemed very there was a cartoon called James Bond Jr., which was out around that time that had that going for it. He didn't have telekinesis. He was James Bond's nephew, which isn't the way Junior normally works. <laughs> and also isn't the way being an orphan, which James Bond was, usually works, but whatever. But yeah, that was one of the cartoons that I was thinking of in this, that it had that feel. Also, the look that Danny Chase had he reminded me a lot of, and I don't think this is a reference that the comic was intentionally making, but did you ever watch the cartoon Kid Video? I did not. It was about a band that was a, started off in the credits as a live-action band, and then they got sucked into a music video where everything was made of cartoons. But the keyboard player, who was kind of nerdy, who was part of the band, looks a lot like the way Danny Chase is drawn. Hmm. But, and here's where Danny Chase does not measure up to Wiz, the guy from Kid Video. Uh, he doesn't drive a Subaru Brat. <laughs> Damn, that's very 80s. Yeah, that Subaru Brat got turned into a cartoon too, and that went into the, the music video world with them. Oh, that's nuts. Pretty good stuff. So it's no Subaru Brat, but the other 80s thing to me, it seemed like, and I don't know why this is an 80s thing to me, is that the kidnappers used the sidecars on their motorcycle <laughs> to throw their victims into. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that was a thing that necessarily happened a lot in the 80s. Well, just who would do that now? <laughs> Tough but fair. How many times have you seen sidecars? Yeah, almost none of the kidnappings that I witnessed use sidecars. There you go. I was able to find a couple of other ones. One of them was the fact that as an obsessively health-conscious and health-food fascist type of person, Godiva advocated people drinking milk. I mm. feel like that was an 80s thing, or at least that was a not-now thing. I feel like, you know, there have been phases with milk, but milk being seen as a healthy thing, I don't think that has been since the 80s. Oh, yeah, that seems like a totally old-timey thing to me. Also, we have the references to the Star Wars defense program. I think that's a pretty specific timestamp. There was a very brief window when some people thought that might work. Man, I remember being torn as a kid about that because my parents were very uh, anti-Reagan, and I was very like pro-Star Wars, the movie, you know, and stuff. The, right, the franchise, and was like, well, I mean, if the Russians are going to shoot bombs at us, how cool would it be to shoot those with lasers? Yeah. Like, to my, I don't know how old I was, eight-year-old logic, like, that sounded like the coolest thing ever. Well, I think as an eight-year-old, you were the target demographic of that program. <laughs> it's, that's my point. Like, it seems like, well, okay, technology wasn't really there yet. I was only familiar with it because I loved reading Bloom County. 
when I was like six or seven, and they talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess I was like ten then, so you were like thirteen. Okay, well, lasers were still cool. Yeah, tough but fair. The other timestamp that I noticed is at one point, Godiva turns to the camera and says, "Aren't I special?" And I think that was probably a church lady reference. This comic came out at kind of the height of popularity for Dana Carvey's character, the church lady, on Saturday Night Live. And her catchphrase was, well, isn't that special? Hmm. And I think that is what that was referencing. That could be a stretch. It could just be that is not a unique phrase. But the fact that this came out when it did, when it was in the middle and towards the beginning of the church lady being such a popular character, I would not be surprised if it is a reference to that. Hmm. Yeah, she was indeed popular. Yeah, 22 appearances in a four-year span on Saturday Night Live. Dang. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club? For using her eyelashes to (laughs) splash tears everywhere, I had a raven. Wow. I certainly considered that. I think Raven was one of the best drawn characters in this book. It made me wonder if perhaps Michael Collins had a special affinity for Raven, seeing as Michael Collins was the astronaut who had to wait in the car on the moon landing mission. If maybe he had a special affinity for Raven, who was the Titan who most often had to wait in the car. Hold on. The artist was an astronaut that had to wait in the moon car? My suspicion is it's probably a different Michael Collins. (laughs) Okay. Probably the artist of this issue was, in fact, the Irish revolutionary Michael Collins. That makes more sense because... Or the whiskey. Like, otherwise I'd be putting moon car shit all over this. Not gonna let that go easy. Well, I mean, it's not like there's no space shuttles in this issue. But... No, I think it's probably a different Michael Collins. But back to president of the drama club, Raven, is a choice that I certainly considered because of just the sheer volume of water coming out of her face when she heals Gar. But I really couldn't give it to anybody other than Godiva. I I mean, she was hamming it up so much and in such a specific way. She was so obsessed with being on camera and making film references. I think she was pretty clearly, for me, the president of the drama club. That is 100% fair. She had a personalized license plate that said Diva123. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? Well, I'll start with the one that I think you're going to like the most. And as my Aqualad, I had Danny Chase. He won the day. He (laughs) saved his folks. He manifested his dream of being an annoying little shit and joining (laughs) the Teen Titans. He did, and I understand why you chose him. I had him listed as a backup with the caveat that he did, in fact, do the best job in this issue, 
but he also did the best job annoying me in this issue. So I could not give it to him. Instead, I gave it to Cyborg because he had a really fun uh, Flintstones joke that he made. You know, I looked up Flintstones as a possible timestamp. <laughs> I was so way off. <laughs> it ran from 1960 to 1966 initially. Yeah, in the 70s, I think it was, they had the Flintstones variety show that had teenage Bam Bam and Pebbles in it. But uh, Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. But yeah, no, Cyborg just has a really fun scene where he, he jumps into the car that Godiva is driving away in, and he puts his feet through the floor of the car and uses his actual feet as brakes. Mm-hmm. And as he does that, he says, Yabba dabba do, Wilma, I'm coming home. And I brought a guest with me. And I was like, that's a fun Flintstones joke. Oh my god, I am so glad that you explained that. I thought that was Lady Godiva just being a wingnut. No, no, she makes a lot of cartoon references as well, uh, which lends to the overall cartoonishness of this issue. She calls herself a bad widow pussycat, and there were a couple of other specific cartoon references that she made. But that one was Cyborg, and it was because he put his feet through the bottom of the car and was uh, using them as brakes, the way Fred Flintstone used to. Okay, well, accepted. Conversely, I had Beast Boy as my Beast Boy for once again being a fucking creep. This time, I think more egregiously even than usual. He has turned himself into a snake and wrapped himself around Starfire and is staring at her butt and quotes the Lucky Strike cigarette slogan. So round, so firm, so fully packed. Mm-hmm. What a fucking creep. That is so gross on all these levels. Like, that's his body, even though it's in snake form. Yeah. And if he had did that in his human form, Starfire would have starbolted him into who knows where. I fucking hope so. The whole gang is really tolerant of his bullshit in that way. But yeah, he, he says, so round, so firm, so fully packed. Hmm, can snakes be in heat? Dude, fuck you, you fucking creep. Also that he's doing that in front of a fucking child. Like... And in front of, uh, like... Everybody. Everybody's there. And Dick and Starfire are an item. Neither of them are uncomfortable. No, Starfire is just, uh... This is another uncomfortable thing, that basically she is looking out the window at one of the most famously phallic buildings in the world and saying... At Eiffel Tower, what an elegant shape. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be like, ah, oh, the Washington Monument, what an elegant shape. It would be a little bit more on the nose or on the dick, as it were. But uh, because the Washington Monument, not a lot of people know this, hmm. but that is uh, George Washington's actual penis. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just a gross, shitty, bad job, Beast Boy. Agreed. I had the same. Corey, what was your favorite panel this issue? You know, despite me being initially, I guess, a little bit put off by the cartoonishness of the art in here, it it did grow on me, and I liked a lot of it. That said, I know we don't generally count the cover among favorite panels, but holy cow, what an interesting cover. It is a gorgeous cover. I think it is by the same artist who did the interior art, but it is a a more painted version of it. And 
it is really neat. I, I like it a lot. It actually reminds me a lot of the art in a comic called Nexus. I don't know if you ever read that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I felt like it had similar covers to this a lot of times. Mm. Yeah, it's really, really cool looking. It is. The style, I don't even know what era to place it in, but like 60s, maybe? Maybe. I'm thinking earlier, but that or might just be 20s, me. 30s, 40s. I, I <laughs> yeah, one of those. That's just, they're all, you know, even decades. Yeah, it's definitely an even number decade, unless it was the 30s. <laughs> so, yeah, the cover is amazing and very different. Other than that, runner-up is page 22, uh, Lady Godiva's Magic Hands. Take a look at that. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a close-up of her face kind of gazing off into the distance and her generating her mind control sparkles in her palm. And I don't know, just that one kind of captured me. It's pretty cool looking. It's interesting. There were a couple of panels that were close-ups of Lady Godiva that worked a lot better than others. She was sometimes just drawn in a different style that worked better for me. The really cartoonish versions of her face were very unsettling to me. But on page seven, there's a close-up of her face that is less cartoony. Uh, and I enjoyed that. I think my favorite, though, is probably Cyborg doing his Fred Flintstone impression. It's just a fun sight gag, and I think captures the more whimsical tone of the comic pretty well. Mm. My other favorite is not that it's necessarily drawn all that well, but it's on page 25, and it is Lady Godiva just backhanding the shit out of Danny Chase. Uh, I called it the Danny slap, and uh, yeah, it's uh, just nice to see. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite from inside the book is probably at the end of the story on page 40, and it's the Ska Boom, and it's just a good old-fashioned giant explosion with a starfire flying through it, rescuing a kid. Mm -hmm. So many colors, really dynamic. It's a good one. It is. The first panel on that page it's supposed to be the star shuttle collapsing and Danny falling off of it. But I mean, speaking of things that look like boners, it's a real Eiffel tower of a depiction of the space shuttle. And it looks like it is batting a tiny, like Keith Herring figure. Yeah. I was just going to say, speaking of timestamps, that's, I forgot that Keith Herring <laughs> made an appearance here. Yeah. It just looks like a boner batting one of his figures out of the sky. <laughs> and that's my favorite panel, a boner batting a Keith Haring stick figure out of the sky. Mm-hmm. No, I'm still going with Danny getting slapped. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I've got to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1989, and the month of our Lord, April, Wapoot! What is Aqualad probably up to? Yeah, in April of 89, Aqualad was visiting his Titan pals in New York, having a good old time. And then on the 23rd of the month, he got some news from his former mentor and still friend, who uh, eagle-brained listeners will remember from previous Wapoots, Tim Berners-Lee, a British computer scientist who was working at CERN which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Yes, I can try the French. The Conseil 
Urupeon. Nope, we're not going to do that. Just say the words in your French accent, Corey. No, we're not doing that either. No! <laughs> anyway, so his former mentor and buddy, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, had, had given him a call and said that, hey, I am just on the cusp of the first successful communication between a web browser and a server via the internet. You know, essentially the birth of the uh, World Wide Web as we know it today. Turns out he was a little optimistic that didn't happen until later, which was Christmas Day in 1990. But uh, Aqualad did not know that yet. And so he was like, oh, shit, I was involved in this, man. This is going to be big. We got to go big. So he grabbed Beaky and went on down to the Four Seasons restaurant and bar and uh, parked in the bar there in New York and just started drinking Got into a conversation with a guy named Willie who kept telling him about, you know, wine and uh, his, his terroir that, you know, Aqualad just thought he was saying terrier or whatever. And this guy was bragging about this really expensive wine he had. And um, Aqualad, at this point, well into his cups, suggested, well, shit, if I had that wine, I think I would just, you know, maybe drink it and break it or something and collect the insurance from it. And uh, that planted an idea in the mind of famous wine merchant William Sokolin, who is famous, or I guess infamous to this day, for breaking at the Four Seasons a bottle of 1787 Chateau Margaux, which, you know, possibly, they said, belonged to Thomas Jefferson, which was worth over $500,000 at that time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it broke upon the floor and uh, nobody got to taste it. He got about half that back from the insurance settlement, and it is said to have resembled a chocolate brown goo and emitted an intense aroma similar to that of stewed prunes. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the things Aqualad was probably up to in April of 89. Corey, do you think when that guy broke the bottle, he made the noise, whoa, 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 whoa? It's almost impossible he did not make that noise. I like to think so. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing that Aqualad was probably up to in April of 1989, but it's not the only thing. One thing that he was up to was following the band R.E.M. around on tour. They were touring to support their album Green, and Mm. Aqualad figured, well, I want to see Green. Where do you go see Green? Boston Garden. That's where the Celtics play. Go Green. So he bought tickets for the April 16th show of seeing R.E.M. play at Boston Garden. He was very excited about that, but he still had work to do, super heroic work. And so he kept monitoring his Titan distress signal call, and while they were visiting Deathstroke in East Africa, Starfire was nervous. She was fiddling with her Teen Titan radio signaler. And she kept flipping it on and off. So when Starfire said, we don't hunt on Tamaran except for fun, but we don't kill our beasts. What he heard was, we hunt Tamaran for fun. We kill. And he thought, someone is hunting Tamaranians for fun? That is awful. But I don't know what I should do about it. He was thinking about, how can I put a stop to this? And uh, because he's Aqualad, he had backstage passes. He, he was hanging out with Michael Stipe, and he was like, well, what would, what, Michael Stipe, what would you do if you felt something was happening that was wrong? Michael Stipe said, uh, well, I'd protest it. And that got 
Aqualad thinking. He remembered all those great protest signs that he used to see back when he was with the original Teen Titans lineup. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to protest the killing of Tamaranians. I'm going to start an organization called No Killing Our Tamaranian Brothers. I'm going to make a picket sign for that. And so he started walking around the streets of Boston, carrying a picket sign that proudly proclaimed the acronym for his new organization, N-K-O-T-B. No killing our Tamaranian brothers. Now, Aqualad's a pretty big celebrity at this time, and when the high mucky mucks in the uh, Boston local government saw Aqualad carrying around a sign that said NKOTB, they wanted to get on board with that. And that is why, in 1989, Boston declared April 24th New Kids on the Block Day. <laughs> NKOTB. <laughs> They didn't understand what uh, Aqualad was getting at, but it turned out his concern was a manufactured one anyway. So uh, that's why there was New Kid on the Block Day on April 24th. I was wondering, <laughs> so thank you for explaining. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us for this giant-sized annual. It's a behemoth of a 43-page comic book, something like that. I'm glad that you enjoyed them, even if I didn't as much. And we will be back next week for an issue that hopefully we'll both enjoy, Defenders number 98. And we'll be back in two weeks to see how Danny Chase fits in with the rest of the Titans in their ongoing adventures in New Teen Titans number 40. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or we can be reached via our post office box at Titan of the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you would like to check us out on the socials media, that's a thing that you can do as well. In a recent interaction on social media, I had somebody inform me on Twitter something that I was not aware of, which is that we have done 300 episodes of some variety of this show. What? Yeah, if you include the Teen Titan Wasteland years and the various Disco Barn episodes and those couple episodes that Ed and Gary sat in for us, mm -hmm. uh, on our podcast feed, there are 300 episodes. That is a lot. It really is. I was honestly very surprised. But we had a few people congratulate us on that. And thank you. And thank you, Corey, for joining me for. The vast majority of those. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been a hoot. Glad to hear it. Anyway, if you can't find us on social media, there's one more place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. I'll be trying to find different things to put inside a tortilla. What kind of non-conventional burritos will I make next? Perhaps some baked beans and mashed potatoes and maple sausage? To make a New England burrito? Maybe some sharp cheddar in there? That sounds pretty good, actually. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts? Questioning that last <laughs> choice, but also trying your burritos, and then probably tidying up. Yeah, I appreciate that. Somebody's got to. <laughs> how, wait, how big a mess do you think that burrito's going to make? I'm not a sloppy chef. Uh, 
It's just got a lot of components, that's all. I don't think more than normal. You got a bean component, a meat component, and a starch component. Like uh like uh, that's that's what you need for a burrito, right? Mm. Yeah, I guess, but you might want to add some cheese and some sauce. And you got your tortilla. Well, you got the sauce from the baked beans. And, yeah, maybe some sharp Vermont cheddar in there. Mm. Yeah, all right, all right. Well, it's, you still got to tidy up. Yeah, no, I, I mean, no, you've got to leave people's hearts in better shape than you found them. Mm-hmm. And plus, like, if you don't stay on top of the air fryer, it's going to get gross. What am I using an air fryer on oh, in this I, situation? I thought you would put the burrito in an air fryer. Why would I put the burrito in an air fryer? Have you not done that? I don't have an air fryer. You bought me an air fryer. <laughs> I know. That's how giving I am, Corey. I wanted you to have one. Well, okay, you've got to come over. I'm going to air fry you a burrito and your mind is going to be blown. I look forward to it. All right. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. We are slowly approaching the, what was the name of that Greek arrow that people fire and it never gets there? Hmm? You know, there's like the Greek thing where there's a guy with an arrow and he fires it, but it never gets there because first it has to go half the distance, then half that distance. Uh, I don't know that one. Sorry. Okay. Well, we're like one of that Greek guy's arrows, but we I think we're getting close to the end of the Steve Gerber run on Howard the Duck, and then we'll find something else to do. But, uh, you know, maybe we won't get there because it's like that Greek guy's arrow, you know? Arrows. Sisyphus? With the ball in the hill? No, that's a different guy. Because it does, it does feel that way. <laughs> it, it does feel that, yeah, okay. It, it feels that way, too. It's also kind of like Tantalus with the, uh, you know, oh, I want to eat those grapes. Hey, they're too far away. Fuck. A lot of ancient Greeks were trying to do shit they couldn't do. Wow. Ancient Greeks. They're just like you and me. <laughs> anyway, you can check us out on Patreon if you want. There's also some other shit up there. A bunch of video reviews of classic comics I've made. So you can look at those. And uh, it also is just a really nice way to let me know that you uh, appreciate the work we do on the show and want us to be able to keep doing it. So thank you so much for that. If they would like to support the show in a non-financial way, what's a way that our listeners could do that, Corey? Oh, they could uh, leave a review anywhere that they find a podcast or anywhere they didn't find a podcast. Oh, anywhere they didn't find a podcast. Well, I mean, but, you know, being respectful of your neighbors and stuff. No, you got to respect your neighbors. Are there any archery-based ways people could let maybe an ancient Greek person know about our podcast? Because as we've been talking, I'm thinking they might be our target demographic. Um, no, we, we don't have that technology right now. Well, you could invent a technology that will let us reach ancient Greece and let them know what we thought about some comic books that came out 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I would appreciate that. And I think the ancient Greeks would appreciate that too. So thank you for that as well. And until next week, um, I don't know, maybe check out Kid Video.
I don't remember that show, but it sounds really weird as I describe it. Oh man, I wonder what an ancient Greek would make of a Subaru brat getting turned into a cartoon. A hero is no braver than an ordinary person, but they are braver five minutes longer. Yeah. It's a little Ralph Waldo Emerson from the end of the comic book there. He was friends with notorious pie thief Henry David Thoreau. I know, that's why I didn't want to bring it up. I know you hate <laughs> Thoreau and his pie-stealing ways. Pie thievery is not my primary problem with Thoreau, but it is on the list. Oh, it's a bad thing to do. Yeah, well, good luck to everyone out there except Henry David Thoreau. Goodbye! Don't steal pies. Bye. <laughs> Or, as this is the future, nope, that doesn't work if you do it in the other order. (laughs) (laughs) Post office boxes aren't new technology. Well, I mean, they're kind of retro. Yeah, they're retro futurist. Mine is shaped like an amoeba. Like a what? Like an amoeba. You know how, like, in, like, a lot of, like, early 60s futurist stuff, you'd get, like, stuff shaped like amoebas, like uh, ashtrays? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like uh, like on the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. 